Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Quite frankly, the the Fed hasn't been in full control of the dollar-based system for the last 20, 30 years anyway. So using these big blunt tools and and trying to you know, make them sound as, as if they are super effective and, and really are going to move the needle, you know, only just conflates and actually confuses the matter. But people buy into it because the Fed operates really through expectations channels and, and their announcements of these big programs help move markets. But the markets themselves still do most of the heavy lifting. Welcome back to The Breakdown with me, NLW. It's a daily podcast on macro, Bitcoin, and the big picture power shifts remaking our world. The Breakdown is sponsored by Crypto.com and Nexo.io, and produced and distributed by Coindesk. What's going on, guys? It is Monday, December 28th, and today on The Breakdown's end-of-year extravaganza, I am joined by George Goncalves. George is a macro expert who is particularly known for his understanding of the bond markets, and even more specifically, for sharing the signals that bond markets are trying to tell us at any given time. I'm really excited to have George back to the show, so without any further ado, let's get to the conversation. All right, George, welcome back to The Breakdown. It's great to have you here again. No, look, it's great. It's a great time of the year, you know, wrap things up, and, and it's been great to listen to all your podcasts. I really enjoyed it, and I learned a lot as well. Awesome, man. Well, so let's uh, let's dive in. I think you're going to have a really great perspective on a lot of these questions. And to start off kind of at the biggest, highest level, what, in your opinion, was the most important economic story of 2020? Well, you know, that's, a, that's one that's really hard to kind of pin down. But I, I guess front and center, obviously, COVID and, and, and what it did and, and the fallout, both on the, on, the, on the health side of things, as well as on the economy. But then what took place in parallel to that and was really like a, uh, you know, in reaction to the, the sort of policy that was put in place by central banks and the fiscal, the, the whole K recovery, this idea that like those that were you know, close to financial assets or you know, were still gainfully employed were able to uh, benefit tremendously from this massive, just really epic amount of response from central banks you know, to a health crisis doing things that were much larger than what they did during the financial crisis. Um, and, and then on the, on the flip side, obviously, th- those policies not really making their way down to many of the industries and, you know, and, 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 and locations and, and municipalities and towns and, and small businesses that were really suffering directly because of COVID. So, you know, the whole K recovery and the, and the ironies and, this, and the tragedy, really, of what that really created I think that's the biggest economic story that 
with all the valiant efforts of, of policymakers trying to really help everyone, it, it really became a huge bottleneck and only a few, well, a large portion benefited, but not those that really potentially needed it. So one of the things that I've been reflecting on a lot is the bluntness of the Fed's instrument, right? So even if you are put on your non-cynical cap and are like, okay, these guys are genuine in their desire to, uh, you know, they're, they're really focused on this goal of kind of full unemployment, right? It, it's felt at various points throughout this year that effectively the message being telegraphed is if asset price inflation and by extension, uh, increased inequality are the cost of full employment. Uh, that's that's a, a cost we're willing to pay. I mean, it's it's almost like the the nature of the policy instrument is doomed to create or to to exacerbate that sort of inequality. I mean, what what do you think about this? I know you spent a lot of time thinking about this. No, I, look, I think that's that's spot on. But it, it's so layered and nested, and different things are influencing that. And and, and look, quite frankly, the, the Fed hasn't been in full control of the dollar-based system for the last 20, 30 years anyway. So using these big blunt tools and and trying to you know make them sound as, as if they are super effective and, and really are going to move the needle, you know, only just conflates and actually confuses the matter, but people buy into it because the Fed operates really through expectations channels and, and their announcements of these big programs help move markets, but the markets themselves still do most of the heavy lifting. I mean, I think they, they suffer from the design of how things have, have evolved. And, and I, I agree with you that they do these things with, with best intentions to, to hit their mandates for both, you know, full employment and, you know, some sort of price stability. But, you know, the, the, the collateral damage along the way is that that you end up with, you know, creating and having to sustain, which is, which is really what's happening now, having mm-hmm. to sustain bubbles upon bubbles because they just can't uh, really stomach to see the other side of, what would happen if there was an actual repricing of financial assets back to more intrinsic values? And so, I mean, the, the irony of the whole situation ends up being that they are trying to create full employment. But in fact, each time they do that, we never regain the jobs that were really lost in the prior cycle. And we get a lower and lower kind of participation rate amongst you know, the population. And that, that's really the unfortunate part. And I think they're 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 not designed to really include financial assets into their modeling, although they keep telling us that financial conditions matter. They they want to keep the wealth effect up there with the hopes that it trickles down, and it ends up getting you know stuck and really doesn't help everyone. It's a fascinating challenge uh, for sure, but it's, it's something's got to give, it feels like. And I guess maybe this gets into my next question, which is, uh, you kind of answered this a little bit already, but what, what do you think is the most important economic story that people weren't paying enough attention to this year? Yeah, and I think we're kind of dancing around it a little bit, but you know, really, all of this manifests itself in the huge, you know, income and wealth inequality that's that's really been growing for years now at levels that we haven't seen you know, since really the, the French Revolution. That story has been underlying for quite some time, but it, it it really took this pandemic and the response to it to to really bring it to the surface. Although it's not talked about or discussed enough or, or in all circles. I mean, you know, they don't even admit it that, oh, yeah, there's no income inequality. In, in reality, in wealth, wealth inequality, I mean, but all these policies, unfortunately, end up in, in that conclusion. So, you know, and it could be, you know, what led to political changes as well. We don't have to go into that. But I, I do think that, you know, the Trump tax cuts, in my humble opinion, should not have been done. I mean, it just put us further into debt at a point where we really needed to do 
other sort of policies that were more geared towards towards labor. So perhaps like, you know, again, there might be a shift that's that has to happen at some point between capital and labor that, you know, that, you know, you have to start to increase wages and start to really have this, you know, wealth filter down further into, 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 into all, you know, all citizens. Yeah. I, th- I think that the challenging thing for so many is, Again, it's all—it's the vehicles we have for the transmission of change feel so ineffectual for the change needed, right? I mean, to your point, you know, I think that you're right to identify that part of our political cycle has been a veering, right, between extremes in order to try to address these sort of shared fundamental conditions. Uh, and the question is whether you know. The, the politics as we have it set up is able to deliver that, but that's probably way bigger than the uh, an end of year show to dive into. One thing that I wanted to ask you specifically, uh, you know, I've heard from a number of the folks that I've had on the show that the zero interest rate kind of, you know, the persistent, you know, long duration, it seems like zero interest rate uh, policies have had people reevaluating how they think about bonds. Bonds are obviously a place that you have enormous experience. You spend a ton of your time thinking about how have you seen attitudes shift around uh, around bonds this year? I mean, what are what are the stories that bonds are telling us? Where do they fit in the market right now? Yeah, this you know this is the upside down pyramid, and, and starting with a, is, a zero is not, never a good starting point. And it, and it has at least highlighted, and, and in some countries and in parts of the world, we're now at you know, record negative interest rates. So forget about just having zero rates in the U.S. It forces people to make uneconomic decisions because they need to find yield somewhere, and then that then creates an environment that you that the central banks are aware that there's a lot of other assets that have benefited from these low rates. That if they were to go up that it would expose that many companies are zombie companies that cannot afford higher interest rates. And so it's worked its way through uh, the credit as well as the investor uh, psyche of, of how to evaluate risk and reward in a way that adulterated or changed in a, in a way the, the, the notion of value and what, you know, what, what is value when rates are so close to zero and when you have credit that you know has now interest rates that are Sitting on top of inflation expectations, you know, really not, not much of a return uh, prospect within in the fixed income market, and, and that comes with a lot of a lot of issues because people usually view bonds as a hedge to their overall risk portfolio and, and profile, and now you know that each time they do this, we're really taking away the benefit of what bonds provide as a buffer for uh, other asset classes. I mean. The, the worst case scenario, you, you, if we ever get to it, would be like that, you know, risk markets are down and bonds don't give you the hedge. And actually, bonds can go down, too, for other reasons, for either credit reasons. And, and so, like, the forcing up into the credit spectrum away from government bonds because rates are so low, the, the, the you're not, not beating inflation, making you, you know, feel like you need to chase risk assets. It's all part of the same story. And it it just compounds risks and, and really reduces the, the ability for, for the bond market to serve as a hedge uh, as it traditionally has. This episode is brought to you by Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto all in one place and earn up to 8.5% per year on your Bitcoin. Download the Crypto.com app now to see the interest rates you could be earning on BTC and more than 20 other coins. 
Once in the app, you can apply for the Crypto.com Metal Card, which pays you up to 8% cash back instantly on all purchases. Reserve yours in the Crypto.com app today. Many investors want to be a part of the next bull run. Others seek to build their dream home, finally launch that startup, or fund their education. Try Nexo's instant crypto credit lines and borrow against any major cryptocurrency with no minimum or maximum withdrawal amounts, no fees whatsoever, no credit checks, and flexible repayment. Not to mention the APR starts at just 5.9%. Stay on top of your investment game with Nexo.io. And remember, it's your crypto, your credit, your choice. Get started at Nexo.io. This is kind of taking it into a different uh, area, but uh, in the context, I guess, of this idea of the tools that the Fed has available and central banks in general have available and what they might try next. I know an area that you've been spending more time looking at this year is central bank digital currencies. What got you to come over and kind of spend more time looking at that? And uh, and where what is your thinking? Where is your head as we head into 2021 around the significance of CBDCs? Well, I mean, we're definitely getting a lot more headlines now uh, about central banks exploring the idea of, of digital currencies. And you know, I'm intrigued by both the significance for monetary policy options, but also what it means uh, vis-a-vis the established uh, crypto space, which I think uh, will coexist in the future with whatever central banks will eventually uh, unfold. Uh, but you know, it's, it was a curiosity around understanding a lot of the problems that we you know, briefly touched on at the start of, the, of this is that there's ineffective tools. And so there's a legacy of so many different layers between repo markets, uh, the euro dollar system, the way the banking system has evolved, the, the significance of the dollar. I mean, there's so many layers of this that you can't unpackage it or expect it to you know, cleanly reset, as some would, would like to, to see. It's really going to require uh, the evolution of both the digital side of you know banking with central banks somehow you know obviously being a key part of that as well as uh, you know the private sector's version of of crypto coming online and taking a, a, a bigger piece of you know, overall uh, the banking system itself and and, and providing alternatives uh, for 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 savers and, and investors. So I, I thought about it from a lot of different uh, angles, and you can't rebuild the system overnight. It's going to have to evolve, and the old system has to somehow unwind itself at the same time. Meanwhile, um, you know the central banks are again with these ineffective tools, and you know politicians and, and policymakers on the fiscal side really don't have you know super effective ways of getting stimulus into the hands of those that need it. So that the idea of of a of a payment system overhaul and the ability to actually inject stimulus where it's needed and not just have it getting bottled up, I think it's a it's a really valiant effort and it would be an elegant solution to some of the problems that we were discussing before. It's just you know it's, it's complicated, it's hard. We're you know I think we're very early on. I think some you know some countries probably have to go at it much quicker than the Fed. I think you know, the Fed hasn't really said that they're you know actively pursuing it, but obviously they're studying it. And I think you know, part of the concern around what happens when the U.S. goes to a digital currency, there's a, a legacy system that you know, really has been with us since the 19, late 90s after the Asia financial crisis, where uh, you know, because of being mostly exporting nations, these countries built up, as well as other countries around the world, 
because of you know commodities and stuff like that have built up you know tremendous dollar reserves to help um, manage their own uh, financial systems uh, and payments. If we get to a world where you know it's really you know instantaneously uh, payment type systems around the world where you know there's baskets of currencies underlying these various digital schemes, then you know these global actors really don't need to hold as many dollars as possible uh, as they have now. And I think that's one of the reasons why the Fed doesn't want to like, doesn't want to, like rush headlong into it. It needs to really think this through because the power you know that, that the dollar affords the U.S. is, is massive. And so, like this idea of you know other central banks around the world will start to potentially roll this out. The Fed will watch it in parallel and then see how this thing works. And you know, there's so there's that element, like the payment system, the role of the dollar, and like how digital central banks would have to operate with each other in terms of the you know, cross-border activity. And then there's you know the monetary policy aspect of it and the fiscal policy, which I was you know starting to, to talk about which is, you know, how do you get this money into the system? Because, you know, the Fed's balance sheet, if you know how it works, you know, it's funded by, you know, actual, there's still a lot of paper currency in the system, um, you know, over, you know, over 2 trillion, which nearly two thirds, if not more, are overseas, by the way, and the dollar still is a, a, you know, a huge medium of exchange in, in the actual paper dollars are still a medium of exchange around the world. So, you know, you know if we're going to go to an e-dollar type system or e-cash, uh, then the, the currency in circulation that helps fund the Fed's balance sheet and it allows it to do its monetary policy, you know, has to become a new tool. And so they have to really know how to execute that uh, in a way where it doesn't like, you know, create, you know, runaway inflation and, and just things like that. Right. So I, I think um, it's going to be a monetary policy tool that's going to have to be put in place. It's going to have both a you know, private sector and a wholesale sector function, it's a CBDC aspect of how it operates through the banking system. And, um, you know, and, it, and it's probably over time going to you know, slowly take away some of the dominance of the dollar's role. Um, meanwhile, like, you know, I think all central banks, not just the Fed, have to be careful of not cannibalizing the private sector commercial banks, which are the real true creators of credit and, and dollars in the system or currency in the system. And making sure that you, know, you preserve the private sector function, give them incentives to actually lend and make money. So it's super complicated. I just spent I don't know how long trying to explain that part, but that's what got me super excited about what I'm seeing happening in fintech and in crypto space. And then trying to like you know compare and contrast to my knowledge of the plumbing and the banking side and the Fed and and, and see like where we're going. So I mean it, it's super interesting just based on kind of the the that answer and and you know your interest in this space like it feels like your sense your base case is that we are in the midst of some pretty significant shifts in how things work. I guess you know a lot of people right now are trying to figure out how much we're going back you know, in the vaccine phase of COVID-19 to something like the old normal versus uh, versus a fundamentally new period in, you know, in markets, economics, et cetera. What's your kind of base case on what next year looks like? Are we going to see just a rip up of demand? Is it going to be kind of all systems go? Are we going to see some pretty significant demand changes? Are central banks going to be more taxed than ever? Are they going to have kind of pulled it off again? I mean, kind of when you look at 2021, how do you see kind of your, your, your what do you see playing out on a on a core level? Well, we got you know roughly two weeks or so to go until we turn the turn the corner into twenty one, and I think 
traditionally, you know, just the way investors act and behave, they start putting on trades for 21 in, tw- in the year before. So like you, you know, a lot of the movements that we're seeing in you know, sector rotations and the, even what's going on in crypto space, I mean, there's probably a lot of pre-placement of trades that are, you know, trying to anticipate the the benefits of what the vaccine will do with the, the growth rebound and you know, the pent up demand that's out there. The the problem I have is, okay, so that's all fine and good. You know, how much of that is priced in? Because like many of the, you know, the valuation metrics on risk assets are at nosebleed territories. We already know that the central banks have our back and they have been, you know, super accommodative all, all throughout. Are they going to up the ante? I mean, what we heard from the Fed, you know, at, at its last meeting, you know, they're, they're perfectly fine with the current level of accommodation. And perhaps they have to do more if there is a, a need from the fiscal side to help you know, finance a bigger stimulus package in, in the year ahead. But either way, I think they've done a lot. And I think and a lot of it has been priced in. So, And the euphoria is super high right now. And sentiment metrics and all valuation metrics are at the, at the extremes. That can carry into the first into the first year, but I, I'm I'm just worried about a repeat of like what we saw in like 2011, what we saw even in you know 2017 into 18, super high enthusiasm. Then we had the vol explosion in 2018 um, with the VIX going bananas uh, with those, uh, and then you know of course we had last year with the COVID crisis really bringing to surface the length of this. Uh, economic cycle, which got a, a temporary reset, uh, in my humble opinion. Uh, but we ne- never really allowed the insolvency or the, the cleaning out the cleaning up of, of, of bad credits within the capital market side. Unfortunately, there's been a lot of small businesses that have really you know, nothing to do with, you know, with finance directly or the financialization of the economy. They're the ones that are really taking the brunt of the hit right now. Meanwhile, because of all of the the stimulus measures are more targeted towards those that have access to capital markets. They've done fine. I think like all of that is going to come to a head next year, and it's going to really prove is this is this a sustainable recovery or was it just you know buying time to kind of reshuffle the decks a little bit so that we can then figure out who's really the strong hands out there. So the enthusiasm carries into the beginning of the year. I don't think COVID you know unless you know, it gets materially worse from here. It's going to change that narrative. I think we're going to be let down that, you know, the vaccines won't really completely fix everything. And we priced in a lot of good news. This is, I think, maybe the the big question and the big thing that everyone's kind of betting on is to what extent, you know, how many how many times can we reshuffle those chairs, right, on the deck, uh, to use that phrase. Uh, so this is a super fun conversation. I, there's a lot more that we could dig into, but I guess just to wrap us up, uh, I want to close with the question I've been asking everyone, which is, what's one prediction that only you have? You know, there's not really one prediction per se, but I, there are a number of inconsistencies that I think need to, to be exposed. And, and that's going to be, can we actually see a handoff from the central bank to the private sector and the banking system actually starting to grow again? And are they going to be willing to continue to offer as much credit that was put out there um, th- this past year? And 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 the, and the markets that I'm I'm really kind of watching closely, you know, are they like the you know the leverage loan markets, the shadow banking type lending, the the private capital markets, you know, are they still going to be the recipients of all this capital that have, you know, really, uh, you know, were coming from displacement from investors looking for, for yield? 
I, I'm, I'm worried about that. The, uh, and, and then the, the housing market and, and how it's had an, an amazing run and how critical the housing market is in terms of collateral at, that it serves for the underpinnings of you know, the, the very same banking system that we hope to uh, see lending uh, expand upon. It, if any of these don't work out or start to show cracks, I think that's where I'd be different than, you know, the, the consensus that, you know, the, the combination of housing and alternative forms of credit uh, availability, if they dry up, then I think then all the other uh, capital markets pieces start to you know suffer and really ex- expose the reality. I think we're going to have to do another show in a few months about uh, what we've learned, what's been exposed, what hasn't, what we're still watching, because there's so much to, uh, to unpack and think about. I really appreciate you taking some time tonight to uh, to, to give us your thoughts on that. And uh, always fun talking, George. So we'll definitely have to have you back again soon. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me. 